So we sell stocks when they're low and buy gold when they're high. And I say, okay, right. So when the gold price drops and stocks are going back, should we sell the gold and buy the stocks back again? That's the quickest way to lose your money. You know, it's, it's, you can't work like that. You have to actually think away from that emotional roller coaster, you know, when fear takes a grip. I'm Stuart Hutton. I'm the Chief Investment Officer at Simply Ethical, and you are listening to Gut Talks, double G U double T. Hi, everyone. Maria here, and welcome to season two of Gut Talks, double G U double T a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist and venture builder running GUT, WGUWT, a design and innovation hub. I decided to launch GUT Talks as the pandemic hit with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Huge apology for the sound quality in some parts, which was out of our control. Stuart and I decided to go ahead and publish this episode so you wouldn't miss out. Thank you very much for your understanding. Feel free to email me if you need me, maria at god.com, W-G-U-W-T, or check the links in the show notes. If you haven't noticed, there are no sponsors for the show, but you can still support God Talks, and it's super easy. Just leave a five-star review and a comment, and follow our social media channels on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, and the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get started. Stuart, to be honest, I'm not sure how to introduce you <laughs> because there are so many things you wear many hats and I know that you're into investing, you're into stocks, you're into wealth management and so on. And just as a disclaimer here for this entire podcast, this is not investment advice or anything like that. This is just sharing your knowledge and so on. And if anyone wants advice, then <laughs> it can formally be done, but um, <laughs> it would be yeah, difficult just to use a platform like that to get, give advice because each case is different. So yeah, let's kick this off. Who's Stuart? Okay. Thank you, Maria. And uh, first of all, it's great. I, I thorough, I'm a big fan of the Gut Talks and the podcast, so it's a real honor to be part of it here. And uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed and I recommend anybody go back and listen to season one, some really fabulous interviews and a real worthwhile some time spent listening to them. Um, so who am I? Yes, uh, Maria's known me for a few years, actually. So she knows what a complex kind of life I lead. I have many plates spinning at once. My kind of biggest part of my background, obviously, is within wealth management and investment management. And to do that, I have a, a conventional wealth management business I manage with a business partner, which is based in the UK. And then also I have, I'm the chief investment officer for an organization called Simply Ethical, who are a leading UK provider of financial advice and investment management for Sharia compliant and ethical investments. And those two seem to take up probably about 100 hours a week. And on top of that, I do a variety of other things as trustees and and non-exec directors for various kind of trusts and organizations, including my children's school, et cetera, because uh, I'm a great believer that you should 
put back into the world what it gives you. And I think it's a really nice thing to do. So uh, this is an example. It's great to be here because any knowledge or pearls of wisdom I can share with the audience and anybody else listening in, very willing to do that. But uh, yes, I won't be giving any direct recommendations right at this stage, but always willing to talk to somebody directly on that. So yes, that's who I am. That was a very quick uh, wrap up of who you are, because yeah, you do many things, obviously. And that are interlinked, obviously, in, in, in a way. But before we kick this off, like completely, do you want to just emphasize a little bit more about mm. the mindset behind investing and investment mm. and why this is not advice? I think everybody has the opportunity to make investments, but investing is a, such a, a wide, broad topic of options. You know, you can invest in cash, you can invest in private equity and everything else in between. So we always look at uh, an elements around a number of different focuses to try and help somebody who wants to invest to say the two words we tend to use that the regulator likes. The one is what's appropriate and secondly, what's suitable and that they have to focus around a number of different kind of measures and facts and ideas. One of the key factors is when somebody's looking to invest is to take advice. I think the advice is not from, you know, your kind of uh, second cousin or someone you met kind of at a cafe recently who said this is a great share to invest in. That's not the way to invest because primarily if somebody, everyone else is talking about it and buying it, you're probably too late. You know, I think the factor here is to look at doing your own research. And in fact, I would suggest taking advice because taking advice is one of the best ways to ascertain that you're getting. Now, what is the most suitable and appropriate investment? There's a kind of what, what I kind of call a little bit of the kind of holy trinity of financial advice. And I think something people need to understand before they actually start putting money into the market. And those are three areas. One, are you able to? So if you've got no money, obviously you can't invest it. Or if you need that money, please don't invest it. Because if you need to pay your rent or pay your electricity bill and energy prices are going up, of course, don't go and invest it because that's a risk you can't afford to do. You know, also, are you willing? A lot of people are very nervous about the stock market. We've seen in the last kind of month or so with, uh, you know, with what's going on around the world, the geopolitics, where the markets fall, people get very kind of nervous and their willingness tends to fall away. The fear factor tends to rise. So the willingness is the other one. And the other one is, do you need to? So, you know, sometimes I meet people and they turn around and they've got huge sums of cash. And I say to them, well, you could invest it, but actually, why take the risk? Do you need to do it? Now, for most investors that willing, able and need to, you need to be able to say yes to at least two of them and then try and argue the third one around in your favor. If you need to and you're kind of willing, you know, if you're not able to, how can you kind of put money into the market maybe at a small amount to build a pot of money up for future reference? So that's the kind of one of the main focus we do. Before you start investing, there's a couple of other factors you need to take into consideration. I always talk to clients about emergency cash. So this is the money that you can access easily. It's there if you've got an emergency. You know, if you are self-employed or even employed, what if you had no income for three or six months? How would you pay your bills? It's really important before you go and put it in the market that you have that cash sitting there, easily available, easily accessible, with no risk attached to it, so to say. And then we tend to kind of break this down then to say to clients, there's four pots you need to consider. So when you look at this, Money isn't just a lump of money going to the market or going to stocks or whatever that might be, but it's actually on a timeline. So what I always say is you have to have four pots on this timeline. One is your now money, which includes your emergency cash. It's the money you live on to pay your bills as well. It's the money you might need for uh, I know, a holiday next month you're going on or some birthdays or going out the weekend, whatever. That's the now money. It's the money sitting in your bank account and it's there ready to spend. We then have something called short-term money. So the short-term money is what you might need in the next one to two years. 
Now, if you need some money, it might be to upgrade your car, go on a much bigger holiday, shall we say, you know, build an extension to your house, something that could be, you know, any size or amount of money. If you need that in the next couple of years, don't invest it. Don't put it in the stock market. It could grow, but it might be worth less. Now, some people are prepared to take that risk. That's their decision. But as on an advisory basis, you know, don't risk that. The answer is to put it into something that has a, a certainty and protected, so that the capital amount is protected. And then you move on to medium term, which is then looking three to five years. And that's about making sure you've got funds that are available, but actually are doing and working for you. And then last five years, you get this kind of long term. That's where things like pensions and long term investments come into play. And those are the ones where you can start to take more risk. Because if you've got a longer period to actually invest that way, you can actually you know, take more risk. So it might be more volatile in that period, but you can take more risk because you've got the opportunity for greater returns. So I'm going to stop at that point there and move on to something a little bit different now, because actually one of the other aspects to consider when if you go to take advice from someone is they'll look at a number of other factors. The obvious one is what's your risk tolerance or tolerance to risk. And people always tend to think this is something around, well, actually, you know, I like high risk, or I like medium risk. And they tend to kind of be a little bit flippant about it. It's just what they think on the day when they kind of walk into that office and they ask, are you low, medium or high? But actually, there's quite a bit of science behind this. And we tend to use a system which actually has a bit of what we call psychometric behind it. And it has a, we use something which has a 25 questions and they all interrelate. And this has been done to a couple of million people now over the last 10 years. So it's built and developed itself going forward. And the key thing about that is, is it's able to give you a kind of better idea of what someone's tolerance to risk is. Now, the key factor about this is also is that that tolerance to risk is something that doesn't change day to day. People think, oh, Monday I woke up and I read the news about Russia and Ukraine and now my, my tolerance to risk is really low. But now, actually, maybe there might be some peace talks. Things like that, so now my tolerance to risk is high. Actually, it's set in your very early years. And as a result, because it's set in your early years, actually, it does your tolerance to risk doesn't change. How you perceive that does change. So we manage that. The two other factors are something called capacity for loss. How much could you afford to lose before it affected your standard of living today and in the near future? And that's an important factor. And the third one, which people often forget about, but it's probably also a really key one, is what are your investment objectives? I have loads of clients who have this wonderful way of, and they're saying, well, they have pots of money, these kind of virtual pots. So they have several bank accounts that have these kind of, you can imagine a kitchen with these kind of shelf with all these pots on. On the pots, they'll have uh, you know, trip to China, they'll have holiday with family, and they'll have all these different pots and new car, and they'll have dates in them. And often that's how they save. And your money can be steered towards that. And the level of risk you need to take kind of steered towards that as well. So hopefully that gives a little bit of insight into what you need to do before you start investing. So my question here is how did you get into that space and like from all general investing to ethical investing, calling mm -hmm. your company mm -hmm. as well, simply ethical? Well, there's a story in itself. So um, <laughs> when I left university last century, I was really interested in the investment and stockbroking market. I really wanted to work in the city. I really wanted to be an investment manager. I didn't know quite what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. I think like most people come, coming out of university, I had a degree that didn't relate to it. I had a degree in quantity surveying. So I, that was always going to be a little bit, of, but it had economics and maths behind it. So that helped. And I kind of looked into it and I really wanted to work with people and help people find a way of being able to actually meet their dreams and meet their objectives. And so being that kind of independent financial advisor, or now as we're called wealth managers or investment managers, was something which is really important to me. However, the problem was when I looked at it was that the commissions rates were so high and it felt something that was not quite right with the industry. 
And this was pre-regulation in the UK. And I actually then ended up going into other industries. I actually worked um, in a number of different areas around recruitment and other aspects, like, you know, small businesses. And I kind of went it more into the entrepreneurial route. And then I came back to it. I came across an American firm based in the UK who were training stockbrokers and financial advisors. And what I liked about it, it was client-centric. It was focused on the client's needs, not on the commissions being generated. And then 10 years ago, we had something called Retail Distribution Review, which shifted all to fee-based. Now, because of that, I knew I could go to a client and I could say, this is exactly how much it's going to cost you. This is how you can pay it. And that's how I want to do it. Now, whilst I was doing that, I started that. That journey started about 15 years ago. And this was just as we were going into the credit crisis. And I just sat at my desk as a fairly new advisor going, I'm losing my client's money hand over fist. I keep going back to them and asking for more because it's a great time to invest. But I don't understand this. It's really hard. You know, that first market fall when you're, you're an investment manager is the, the pit of the stomach type thing where you can't sleep at night and you've got clients going, I invested 100,000 with you. Now it's only worth 80. Now it's worth 75. Well, I've lost all my money. You're okay? but, but it will come back again. I, I'm sure it will. But you know, you're not at that point because you've never lived through it. Now, of course, it's fine. I understand the market and how it works much better with that experience. But one of the things I looked at, Maria, was really important was I felt that the banks were failing at that point. And I was really worried about how, as an industry, but also how the banking system was failing us. So one of the things I wanted to do was look at maybe approaching this in a more ethical way. And I have quite strong faith as a person as well and belief. And I wanted to see where also my faith could connect with that. And I looked into it over a period of time and kind of investigated this. And something that came up actually was Islamic finance. Now, I'm, I'm not a Muslim, but I was very interested in this because what it brought forward was a series of values that actually meant, you know, we could attach values and something of ethics to what we were investing in. And there were other factors around this which really interested me. So I did some research into this, which actually resulted in, because I wanted to actually, I decided at that point, this was going back in 2008, I wanted to focus on Islamic finance as well as just the general market and investment management. And I wanted to focus that on the ethical connection with this as well and the responsible manner of finance. And interesting enough, um, what I recognized was that to understand Islamic finance, I had to understand Sharia law. So I studied that. And understand Sharia law, you have to study Islam. So I spent many years studying and focusing on Islam and Sharia contract law and also Islamic finance, which kind of then brought me to the forefront where I was looking to try and establish a business in kind of 2012, 2013, where actually I met the CEO of Simply Ethical, Faisal Kobani, and we became good friends and talked a lot. And ultimately resulting in 2015, me joining the company as the CIO. And that for me is really important because actually that embeds my focus on doing the right thing for the clients. Now, interesting enough, if you shift 15 years forward, um, when we talk about sustainability, so you talked about clients, sustainability is about something that means it's going to be around for a longer time. So, you know, I think you could have easily talked about coal being sustainable 30 or 40 years ago because people saw there was tons of it underground and it was a great way of producing kind of cheap energy and mining it and burning it was the way to do it and then we of course learned that actually that's not a very good idea because if you do that you also create carbon dioxide and a lot of other things and as a result of that we destroy our planet so that's a very brief climate crisis uh, <laughs> kind of equation but uh, as a result of that i recognized that you know sustainability became really key and that 
being responsible. So as an investor, Maria, if you came to me and said, actually, I'd like to invest some money. And I said to you, okay, would you like to invest in a coal powered fire power station? Or would you like to invest in a solar powered kind of farm? You know, if I was talking to you 20, 30 years ago, you would have gone solar powered, solar panels. No, I don't think so. No, it's be really expensive. and It just doesn't work properly. I'll go for the coal because I know I can get a dividend out of that and I can make money. If I went to you today, what would you say? You'd say solar power. Because solar power or those kind of things are actually the ways of you know, dealing with things. So sustainability has had a new meaning. But sustainability is about also taking responsibility for the actions you take. So I'm, I'm a great believer in that. So my journey through that has been kind of an approach to bringing ethics into play. And obviously, I have a number of roles in various things I do in various organizations to make sure this is at the forefront of what investors should be thinking about. We can't just now, we can't just can't go and invest money into things that are destroying our planet. We have to invest in things that are not just responsible and sustainable and you know green where necessary, but actually are you know socially having impact, you know, that a positive social impact and positive environmental impact, have good governance. People often forget about that. This ESG, the governance, the G often gets left off at the end. You know, good governance in businesses is absolutely critical, really is. Yeah, I think uh, just to relate to that, if we go back to season one, to the episode with Ravi Shidambaram, Blake Gould and, and season two with Margie. I think we kind of touch into that. So we invite everyone to listen to these as well. Uh, Me too. Mm. <laughs> um, into that. But because we also tackled, you know, there's lots of greenwashing, there's lots mm. of other words. And also when someone says investment, again, it depends obviously of who you're talking mm. to. But there's a lot of buzz, especially with, you know, this uh, new trend of being entrepreneurs as well to be investing at the same time in stocks and in crypto and it doesn't matter where you kind of expect or you know if you spend lots of time on social media it will be like yeah everyone should invest you should invest put your money somewhere whatever but you should also be able to afford to lose it but then you have young people who become millionaires because of some investments sometimes it's luck sometimes they've done lots of work behind it sometimes so it's many factors but it's not going to happen to everyone so yeah what, what do you have to say around this because investing doesn't mean quick return doesn't mean becoming a millionaire and these are basic things that were yeah. mentioned here but it, it you have this misconception and at the same time investing is not only for people who can afford massive sums like anyone can do it taking into consideration what you were saying at the beginning mm. exactly mm. well i mean you know to give you a kind of statistic about one in 14 people take financial advice every year in the UK. About 4 million people need financial advice. So, you know, these are people who, for one reason or other, have had a change in circumstances or want to make a difference to their life. A lot of people don't say it because, you know, they are finding themselves, you know, they're not in a position where they can afford to or they don't particularly want to. They don't want to take that level of risk. Primarily, it comes around where people have excess savings, and that's kind of a, a key factor here. I mean, I think the key thing is that there's a difference between being an investor and being a speculator. So a lot of people kind of consider this like, if I had, you know, if I found that thing, like put a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars or a hundred euros into, and a year later I've got a million, you know, if I could do that. But if they could find it, why can't everybody else do it, you know? And, and interestingly, this is where kind of cryptos come a little bit about, because cryptos tend to kind of create these um, kind of instant millionaires where people have kind of taken the risks, they've got in early, they've done it when people probably didn't know about it much. So as other people have come into it and it's become more a trend, they, they've ridden that wave as it's got higher. And that's obviously kind of helped quite a lot. I think, I think to kind of go back to looking at investments, you, you need to understand that there's not just 
at, you don't just invest. You have to look at another kind of factors, kind of what you're investing. There's kind of one, two, three, four, five, say, broad asset classes that you can look at. So one is cash. You know, cash is something which obviously is, is important. It's the one that you've got the capital protection in. It's there. You can take a little bit of risk at sometimes, you know, but generally speaking, it's about you know how much interest you can earn from it or in terms of that finance, we have something called profit share, so how that can work. Then you have the next level, which is kind of corporate bonds or bonds. So this could be a government sovereign guilt bonds with the UK government or the US Treasury bills, whatever. It could be corporate bonds where you basically, they're called loanership investments, where you loan your money to a company so there and they employ that into their business and they pay you a fixed rate of return over a, a regular basis and at the end of a period that you've agreed they pay you the original sum back so you would pay so example you'd lend ten thousand to a company they're going to pay you a, a yield of three percent per year so from that ten thousand they give you 300 pound interest or whatever it might be in form it comes back to you every year and end of 10 years they give you a ten thousand pound back now of course in 10 years ten thousand isn't worth the same as it was when you first invested it. So you don't tend to get what I call any inflation proofing around the capital value. So there is that kind of risk factor to look at there. Uh, the next step up then obviously is shares. And everyone knows about shares. Yeah. So this is where you have what we call, the previous one was loanership. These are called ownerships. This is where you own companies, you own equity, you have an equ equity within the business, a share of the business. You know, And if it was a small family business, you might own 10, 15, 20% of it or even more. If it's a massive FTSE 100 or S&P 500 company, you probably own 0.0000001% or something, you know. But the whole point being is you have a share of business. And think about equities and shares of businesses. It's, you know, I always talk to say about behind every stock is a company. And if you want to invest in a company, don't just invest in a stock because you think that this sounds like a good company and it's doing good things. Go and look at the company. Go and look at the people. Look at the people who manage it. Look at the workers. Look at their kind of human rights records. Look at their governments. Look at their accounts. Look at all the different things they do. And actually, that's really, really important. So by owning a company, you actually have a responsibility because you are part of the ownership. And of course, the return you get as an investor can be, first of all, as the company grows, the value of the business grows, and therefore your share of that grows in line with it. The other factor then is, of course, is that if the company makes profit, which most companies do, not all, I have to say, you know, obviously a fairly early start companies don't make profit, and you know, rightly so, but in most companies aim to make profits from early years onwards, and that profit can be shared out to you as a dividend. So you get an opportunity for two types of return. One is the capital growth and the other one is the income, which is derived from the dividends or share of the profit as it comes out. You then move up to another stage where you have things what they call like infrastructure. So infrastructure, another asset class altogether different. And that will be looking at things like property. So it might be uh, commercial property, retail property. It could be even residential. There's no reason why not, you know, all that different classes. So it could be a massive Amazon warehouse or it could be a retail shopping park somewhere in kind of outer London or say it could be a hotel or something like that. So those property things. You also infrastructure can diversify into other areas like bridges. It can diversify into kind of roads, toll roads and all those kind of areas where you need to have something in place to make it work. There's a, a necessity for that infrastructure place and there's an opportunity to earn money from that. So sometimes the government will borrow money to build something and will pay back that money to you over a period of time. And then, of course, you've got commodities, which probably people are talking about quite a lot now. You know, I get a lot of calls about, you know, should I be investing in gold now? You know, because you know, gold is the go-to where people are, are worried about the risk around the marketplace and what's going on. Gold, that shiny metal has a has a certainty around one, it's there's only so much around and only so much available, and it has a certain value, you know, and it's a really important value. So on that basis, 
you know, um, commodities are wrong. Commodities are actually kind of are far broader than that. It's not just gold, by the way. You, know, you can have silver, palladium, platinum. You can have all the precious metals. You can go into more base metals around nickel, copper, and those kind of areas. But then it also goes wider. So obviously oil, that's a commodity, you know, in that sense. You can go to wheat. You know, these things, uh, you know, um, pork bellies, orange juice, you know, you've, you've probably kind of heard of these things, you know, on, on the various kind of commodity markets. And they can be very, very varied, you know, so and they can be very volatile as well. One of the issues people often don't understand with commodities is that commodities don't give you actually an income. So if you have invested in gold, the only way you could create an income would be is to realize some of the capital, which basically means taking your little lump of gold and cutting a little chip off the edge of it. Now, if you do that, obviously you reduce the capital value, but at least you can spend it. So commodities are, are but these are good because if you invest in all these five asset classes, what you're doing is creating diversification and they all act differently at different times in different markets. Generally speaking, what we call defensive type assets like fixed income and bonds and gilts and those kind of areas and cash, they don't tend to go down when the market goes down. Quite often they go up, actually, because people tend to buy them more because they feel it's safer. And then also things like commodities like gold can be a similar thing. And then also kind of areas like infrastructure, which tends to have lower volatility. But I think there's a bit of an illusion there. People always go, well, we need some more property and, uh, and infrastructure because, you know, it gives you a really good return, but it's much lower volatility. Lower volatility basically is because infrastructure generally has poor liquidity. So if you're invested in property fund, which owns hotels and Amazon warehouses and Tesco's and other things, if you have to realize a large lump sum of capital, you've got to go and find a buyer and it can take months. So that poor liquidity means you get a relatively low volatility. But if you spread your investments among these different areas, what happens is, is they start to smooth the returns out and they protect you on the downside and help you on the upside. Ad break. No, not an ad. But as you may have noticed, this show has no sponsors, but you can still support Gut Talks by leaving five stars or a comment on your podcast player and like, share and follow the social media channels of Gut. W-G-U-T-T. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get going. There are a few things here because there's one thing about the mindset when you talk about diversification as well of your investments and so on, because I am more familiar with the startup kind of thing mm -hmm. than, uh, you know, investing in stocks and stuff like that. So diversification is also one of the key aspects, especially mm -hmm. when you talk about angel investors and so on. They put mm -hmm. small sums and they diversify their portfolios and so on, whatever. But the other side to it is in any case, whereas it's startups, but also what we tend to dismiss is crypto, because at the end of the day, these coins are not just coins. You're investing in people behind them and organizations that are building these Mm. And it's something that is quite similar to what you're saying, that behind those companies, there are people. And it's the same thing. Mm. These are like two things I want to highlight. But if someone wants to, let's say, get started, there are people who just go straight to the bank or like the banks would call you. So would you like to invest in, you know, whatever? Put your hands <laughs> it's like, okay, like for me, if I, if I get a call like from a bank, it's like, I don't trust you. That's the first thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, we still need banks but you know again mm -hmm. but there are so many startups out there like mm -hmm. that made noise as well Robin mm -hmm. last year in the US mm -hmm. for example like everyone could invest from like their phones small amounts there are yeah. there's one also in uh, Austria a company I, I think it's called Big Panda or something like that yeah where everyone mm -hmm. can yeah go and uh, get started so if people want to get started by themselves just to, to explore for me crypto is kind of easier because i 
I've done my research it's a few mm. years ago, whatever. I, I know what to do. I'm not an expert, but you know, I have an idea. With stocks, it's not something that is as prominent in that sense, uh, mm. at least you know, from my perspective. It's all about the mindset, I guess, right? In a certain way. Either it it, it is. Yeah. I mean, here exists a generational gap almost, I think. So, I mean, I think it's easier to actually feel more confident about looking at a company to invest in because you can. So I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, if you want to invest in a, a particular company, a shoe company, you know, a shoe shop company, you could go down to your high street and walk in. You can go and buy a pair of shoes there. You can talk to the staff. You can look around and say, you know, what's it like to work here? And, they, and they're not going to suspect anything. And don't ask any difficult questions like kind of uh, what's the balance sheet looking like? You can do that back in the office. But you can walk into that shop. You can ask the staff. You can look at the products. You can talk to other customers. You know, you can find out from your family and friends and neighbors. Do you use that shoe shop? Have you been there? What do you think of it? You know, and you get the sense of if you get people coming out and say, yeah, they're good value. They, you know, they're not the best shoes, but they last a long time and we like them. And the staff always friendly thinking, okay, this is a shop that's attracting customer in. Therefore, maybe this is something that's fairly profitable. You know, I think going and seeing these companies and how they work is so important. I mean, Amazon's a really good example in some of, you know, and again, this is not a, a suggestion to go invest in Amazon. But, you know, if you look at these kind of big tech companies, you know, where they're at kind of everybody's has, has a touch point. You know, most people with Amazon are either, you know, are buying stuff Amazon, having stuff delivered, they're using it for business, they're watching Amazon Prime, they're doing all these different factors. Amazon is, is kind of spreading out into our lives in so many different areas. And there's an advert on telly here in the UK where you know it's for aws you know when you look at it you kind of go what's that and then there's, there's the kind of the arrow sign you go it's amazon and it's talking about the it's every factor in your life how it influences you now there's a company that you can then suddenly have a real good touch you know there's, a, there's lots of touch points there so you can start to understand how it works i actually think crypto is dangerous because i think people understand they think they understand a lot about it but actually primarily most cryptos owned by far less people and therefore, you get a high concentration who are more influential in the market. And people like you and I who dabble in it, you know, I always say to people, I, I get loads of people asking, you know, should I invest in cryptocurrencies? And uh, how much? And, you know, what, which, which ones? Which ones? You know, I mean, there's, there's thousands now, isn't there? I mean, this to tokenization over the last few years has created a, a plethora mm -hmm. of some really interesting coins. Now, like you, what I do is, and I use I use um, Revolut as a wallet, you know, I go back in, I do research, I go and look at the white papers, I read, I look at the website, I understand what the token, what the cryptocurrency is being used for. And my interest is in the blockchain, the engineering behind it, and how it's influencing businesses and how it's driving businesses, right. driving opportunities, and how the technology is being used. And therefore, the value in the coin is being derived and developed in that. But often people don't understand that. What they see this is more like a commodity. Bitcoins go up, I'm going to go and buy loads, and then it will go up more, then I'll sell some. And you're going to go, okay, you're now just speculating. So you're not investing, you're speculating. So I always say to people, if you don't have relatively good understanding of cryptocurrencies, it's a bit like going to the horse races. I only bet what you can afford to lose. So if you come out at the end of the day, we've got the we've got Cheltenham races on this week here. So it's manic here in Cheltenham. Two hundred fifty thousand people turn up in a town of one hundred fifteen thousand. So imagine that. You know, we we've kind of tripled our uh, people who are here in this town, and they will spend hundreds, if not thousands, of pounds gambling, and most of them will lose because otherwise. You know, the bookies wouldn't be there because the bookies have got to make money. So more people are losing than win. That's the way odds work. But the whole point here is you kind of gamble on the basis that you might win. That's what gambling is all about. I'm not a gambler, never will be. But one of the things here is, is that I always say to people with cryptocurrencies, invest in what you can afford to lose because then 
if you don't really understand the market and you make a mistake or you do bad timing or you need your money out, just be careful. Be really, really careful. However, I think there's a really, really big picture here going forward in the future. So first and foremost, you know, anybody aged under the age of, let's say, I know, 25, 30 or whatever, certainly, you know, cryptocurrencies have been at the forefront of their mind for a very long time of their adult life. And, and I look at also kind of even teenagers like my children, and I look at the way they talk about it. And the normalization of using tokenization tokens is becoming more and more to the forefront. It almost becomes the normal speak. So as that starts to bed into the culture and we and the people who are over 60 and 70 who went, I don't understand it, not interested, even though they're probably using operations that rely upon blockchain and you know, distributed ledger technology. I mean, you know, actually, that's fine. That's not a problem. But as they, this becomes norm, the central banks are going to be challenged by how these cryptocurrencies work. Regulation is going to come in to manage it somewhere. And you know, I think is it the UAE have just announced they've just launched haven't they, a kind of sub-regulatory body around cryptocurrencies and, and use for it. And I think this is good. It's healthy because it means that we can start to get a sense of how the risks are managed and how it's dealt with. You know, and I think that's where I do it. There's a really good trick about investing that also is really important, I think, that uh, anybody listening should definitely take heed of. You can put all your money in the market and go for it. And that's great. If you've got 20 years to wait, you know, go for it. You know, make good choices, suitable investments, hit your risk profile, make sure you know what your investment objectives are and that you've got enough cash to live off in case it goes down in value. For most people, they don't have millions of dollars to throw into the marketplace. Most people have a bit each month. So we do what we call pound cost averaging. So if you put in a bit each month, this is a great way of investing over the long term. Most people's in the pension. So each month, pay packet comes out. A bit of the pay packet goes into the pension. Put some into your, we have um, something called individual savings accounts here, which are tax-exempt savings accounts. You can do stocks and shares and cash. You know, there are other ways you can invest. Most countries have some kind of exemption around some areas. By putting a bit of money in each month, at first, it doesn't feel much. But as you kind of build over the years, it makes a big, big difference. And of course, that's the key factor here. You know, by putting that in. And then, of course, you can then actually turn that around when you decide you want to take some income out of it, you can actually start do what they call pound cost diminishing. So you can actually start taking the money out, but leave it invested as best as it can be. So when it comes to cryptocurrencies, to come back to that, that's a really good way of doing it as well. Because with cryptocurrencies, that means you can actually kind of monitor the market without feeling you're kind of throwing your heart, soul and all your savings into it. Yeah. And you highlighted a good point is that Often we can hear people saying crypto and dismissing the whole blockchain behind it, which is key, actually. And, and, and there's lots of scams as well going around. I did a podcast on that one. So if you yeah, want to yeah. listen to Erica Stanford, because that's um, there would have been, I don't know how many scams since we recorded this episode, which is not a very long time ago, really. No, <laughs> a few months ago. No. But anyway, my uh, question to you here is, obviously, you've been doing this for a long time. And, and I thought it's a, it, it's a good topic because, you know, in crypto, you can learn so much from stocks and so on, even mm. though it's different, but it's mm. in the mindset. And how do you do your research? So how do you stay on top of what's happening to, to be able to assess? I mean, mm. one thing I might actually ask you is, do you actually trust somehow maybe your gut right <laughs> i know i scared you before but <laughs> so i kept the volume low if you heard the gong but also beyond your gut feeling if you kind of trust it how, how do you yeah stay on top of things uh that's a really good question so 
As an investment manager, my stock answer is no. It's not about my gut feeling. It's about the fundamental analysis. It's about the research I do. It's about the work we do to actually make sure that the decisions we're making are the right decisions. As a human being, you can't but either consciously or subconsciously have a gut feeling about the way things seem to be going. What is really interesting is that, I mean, people... Anybody investing or has spoken to a financial advisor has probably heard the saying that Warren Buffett said, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. So, you know, when you're finding a gut feeling, if you know, that's it's, I love that saying because it's so true. You know, if the market's falling and hitting down the bottom and everyone's running for the hills and you've got good quality companies producing great products and services, profitable, sharing dividends, you know, buy it, you know, buy these investments, buy these companies, because that's a great way of doing it. You know, and when people are buying it all because it's all going up and up and up, then start to be a bit wary. That's probably the gut feeling in me. So it's more of a, what I call a, a professional gut feeling as opposed to a kind of subconscious gut feeling of um, my human nature. I, I think over the kind of 15 or so years I've been working in investment management, I've almost trained myself out of that emotional roller coaster. And it, it applies to my own investments at all, because if, I, if it didn't, I would be failing anyway. So I think you know, in that respect, it's really important to so I, th I think as a, someone advising people and managing people's monies, I understand that they have those emotions and they have those gut feelings. And I do kind of get company clients come up saying, oh, we should invest in this company. It's really, really good. Look, it's making loads of money. Or, or now people are saying, look, why don't we sell some shares and buy gold? Because gold's kind of gone up really high and it's, it's a really safe place to go. And I'm going, so we sell stocks when they're low and buy gold when they're high. And I say, okay, right. So when the gold price drops and stocks are going back, should we sell the gold and buy the stocks back again? That's the quickest way to lose your money. You know, it's it's you can't work like that. You have to actually think away from that emotional roller coaster. You know, when fear takes a grip, or when you get greedy, you need to. And everything in between. There's lots of stages in between. You know, there's there's grieving. There's all these other factors. There's this lovely kind of chart that you can look up online. Just look up investment roller coaster emotions or something, you know, and you'll find it. And for us, what we do is we take that and we look at clients. And quite often, I'll sit in front of clients and say, "Where do you think we are on this?" And, you know, you could see 10 clients in a day and they'll all pick different points because it's the way they feel. So, you know, to be fair, you know, their gut feeling is always going to be different. And some of my clients will always be nervous. Some of my clients will say, get on with it. Don't worry about it. You know, if we lose some money, that's fine because we're going to make some money. You know, that's absolutely fine. So I, I kind of think that, you know, I, I think it's important to have that human touch to it, that human aspect to it, but don't rely upon it to make the decisions you need to. I think you really have to focus on the fundamentals. You know, what makes a good company? You know, and what makes a good company is the product it is it produces, the service it provides, you know, the way it deals with its markets, its its competitive nature, the people who work in it, the people who manage it, and ultimately the people who are making the decisions at the top, you know, the CEO, the CFO, all those people. Look at all these factors, you know, and we always say we don't just look at numbers. We actually look at people and the decisions they make. And that does affect the market, definitely. That's actually a good point you're touching on, because this is the traditional model. But now if we look at the new upcoming and whatever DAOs and Web3 and all of that, that mm. it's all about community. It's all about mm. flat structure somehow where everyone's making decisions. The community is building up. Everyone's profiting from it. So how is this going to change, you think, over time? It's, it's a tough one. I'm not expecting Yeah, yeah it's, a really, good, it's a really good question. I, I, I don't know the answer to that because if I, if I did, I would be investing in a certain way <laughs> to make a lot more money. If you're talking about in terms of, I mean, the big fact here is technology. So, you know, we, we do a lot of what I call thematic investing into places around like cloud computing, storage, renewable energy transmission, all these kind of factors around the use of really good technology. People always go, oh, you know, for those of you who remember 
1999, 2000, 2001, we had the tech bubble when it burst. And, you know, it was just a forerunner to actually what I call the real true explosive nature of technology in our world. Now you look at these companies and people come back and you go, oh, you know, look at Tesla or Amazon or whatever these kind of big tech companies are. They've, they've, they've made the money, they're gone. You're going, no, they haven't even started. You know, Facebook and social media platforms. These, these companies are really smart. So they may have flattened structures. They may be more influenced from the bottom up in terms of their, their workers and the way they, they manage things. I mean, hierarchy will always exist, even where it doesn't exist. You know, even in communism, you have the workers, but you still have the people yeah. at the top making the decisions. And let's not go into politics, though. Not today, anyway. Uh, no, I think no. definitely, definitely, not, definitely not communism, anyway. One of the factors here is, though, is that, you know, you still can look at a business and what it's doing and how it's performing. You can still go and spend time reading. And there's so much. Well, I would say the greater danger is not so much kind of going forward on that. One of the greater challenges for investors going forward is how to siphon through the amount of information you get. There's so much misinformation or misinterpretation out there. But actually, it's about how can we take all this massive you know, web 3.0 all this all this, what you just mentioned is now throwing this stuff at us and our tiny human brains that used to be the most powerful thing in the world now have quantum computing so now what we do is i go i can't cope with this so i'm going to go over there to that quantum computer and we're going to show everything into it and it's going to come up with the answer and i'm going to trust it it's all experimental at the moment i mean it's being shaped uh, no one mm. knows i mean what we know today or we think we know is going to change tomorrow <laughs> so yeah well uh, i mean we, we talk about moore's law which was you know that kind of fact around how technology kind of doubles every every two years or 18 months i can't remember what now interpretation of current interpretation of moore's law is but there's no doubt about it the world is moving faster and faster primarily due to the underlying use of technology and the way new generations coming through the generation z and and the new generations coming through are able to adapt so quickly to it you know so I mean, we i always joke about with my friends about how my children their children are going to have massive thumbs because they sit on their kind of laptops and ipads or you know smartphones all the time they're going to have great big thumbs and there was there was uh, someone told me in america there was an experiment done where they took parents kind of aged between let's say kind of 40 and 50 and children in their kind of teens and they would make them walk up to the door to press a doorbell and all the parents would go up and they would press the doorbell with the index finger all the children would go up and press it with their thumb. And the reason being is that the thumb is becoming a different type of utility aspect because of the way they use it in their world. So I know it's a really kind of, sounds a bit of a daft thing, but that small aspect is changing the way we work. So I think, you know, in fact, that, you know, how often do you sit, you know, with paper and write a letter these days? And I mean, people do, but, you know, you have word processors, you have computers, you print, you email, you use kind of security. I mean, it, the way we've changed, you know, the technology is advancing so quickly. So as a result, actually going back to what you were saying right at the beginning here is that this isn't going to necessarily take away a lot of the issues and challenges it's going to just create different ways of viewing them and and make maybe even some new challenges and i think that's going to be something we're going to have to kind of look at as we kind of go forward because i think for someone like myself i'm relying quite a lot on um, automated systems and specialist analysis systems and alert systems you know how i keep on top of things is that you know if, if there's suddenly a, a crash in a share or an issue or a bit of news that comes up that's relevant in a particular set of data that i've put forward it comes through to me immediately on my phone. I can get on my system. I can make a decision. I can be very quick about it. Generally speaking, though, uh, you know, we rely upon also active management within funds or even passive management funds. We look at different ways of doing things. And generally speaking, it's business as usual, but it's just that bit quicker because the systems around us can do it quicker. So you rely on yourself and on your peers, I guess, too, because, you know, without the community in that sense, it would be kind of 
tough also, right? I mean, how, how do people do my job before email? Or actually, no, WhatsApp even, you know? I mean, if you stripped out all the modern communication we've achieved in the last 20 years, I would have to work in London, in the city. I would have to be at a desk there for the markets. I would have to have at least three or four telephones, you know, ones you pick up and you dial with a dial, you know, all my And screens 360. And you'd have to, well, I have to I've got I've got screens. I normally have four or five screens open my desk anyway. But I think that's because I think it looks cool. Um, but also, you know, it's nice to do the comparative. I think I can get away with three screens sometimes, but, you know. So I guess it's a patience game as well. And I have two questions for you based on, you know, what you were discussing. I know it's not something you can predict, but the crash of 1929, that one I, like, I studied. We all studied at school, right, and stuff. And, you know, every few years... 10 years more or less, I don't know, we have a crash and then a massive crash. And mm -hmm. and there are speculations that there's one coming very soon. I don't know, because of what's happening in the world, around the world. So how do you manage this? How do you deal with those these situations that are not always predictable or the stocks can, mm. or your experience can help you kind of you know, have this sensation of what might be coming up. Okay, there's some really good facts around this. Okay, first and foremost, you know, if you invested at the beginning of the crash in 1929 and held those shares today, you'd be a very, very wealthy person. And I'd be dead. But it's about you know long term. Investing is always about long term. Okay, so let's just think about this. I can guarantee, and actually the regulator hates me, but I can. They would agree in this. I can guarantee. Going forward, stocks are going to go down, and they're going to go up, and they're going to go down, then they go up, down, up, up, down, 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 up, up, down. That's what they do. Stocks can only go in two directions. They either go up in value or they go down in value. Yeah. They can't go in any other direction. Where they head is all about the perception of where the market thinks either the general economy is going or where the company is going or other particular factors. We have what we call market risk. There's, there's loads of risks, and, I, and we, we're out of time to talk about it today because you know there's things like liquidity risk or inflation risk and all these other factors. But when you actually look at risk, you know, risk is a really big factor. So if you have market risk is where um, something's happening, they see the global economy slowing down, there's concerns around these companies won't make as much money. So basically people go, okay, I'm going to disinvest. So they take money out, they sell the shares, and the market goes down because the market basically has pushed everybody down. There's some that might not go down and stay up for particular reasons. They're more defensive type shares. Quite often you find utility ones because they're more regulated and therefore they're, kind of, they're not going to go down. The money's going to keep coming in type thing. Generally, it goes down. And then, of course, it goes down, 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 and eventually gets to a point where less people are selling, and people are going, hang on, it's getting quite cheap now, and the market's going down, and people start buying, and then it goes up again. So what you generally see is, if something small happens, people sell off, you see a little bit, and a, a little bit, back, and a little rise again. If something massive happens, March, you know, February, March 2020, you know, the market's going, everyone's closed off shop. <laughs> What's going to happen here? Now, that, you know, people are still going to eat. People, still, well, people won't drive as much, you know that. But you know, people are still going to need energy. They're still going to need lots of things. They're still going to buy Netflix. Or, you know, whatever they're going to do. But the whole point is, the market went boom down. And the deeper and faster it falls, the quicker it tends to bounce back up again. So, so if we have a 1929, 1930s style depression and the market crashes. The biggest danger is where companies fail. So if a company is failing, 
then that's the problem. If companies aren't failing and are still profitable, still making money, then that is the problem. So if you're a pharmaceutical making paracetamol or neurofen or a drug that's needed by lots of different people on a regular basis globally, then actually you're still going to make money. You know, and that's the whole key thing here. So you need to have that confidence to say, this is now a company that's very cheap. Let's buy some because when that comes back up again, we're going to be able to make money. This 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 draws that back down to the kind of simplicity of this. I try to explain to people that you know, I mean, I have some clients who actually really think I make the market go up and down. I don't know how they think I do that. You know, will I pedal fast or pedal slower? But I didn't know you do that. No, I, I do pedal, but it doesn't affect the market. That's just my cycling around or running. Uh, but. If I would say it's really the market is really, really simple. So the market isn't actually making necessarily a pure judgment on what that company's worth. It's what it thinks it's going to be worth in the future at some point. Generally, 12, maybe 18 months could be sooner. Okay. But the key factor is that if people are slightly more pessimistic, they tend to sell more. If you are selling more than people are buying, the price will come down because you're selling, you're selling, you're trying to find buyers. So if you keep lowering the price and the market comes down, if people think it's actually a bit low and it goes higher, more people are buying and less people are selling. Of course, if I'm a seller and there's more buyers, I'm going to make the price go up. And that's how the market works. A free market, that's how it works. So I always say to clients, don't worry too much, actually, about you know where the market is going on a day-to-day basis. Don't worry too much about the fact that you know, suddenly it's dropped 10%. Think about what your money is going to do for you in the next 10 to 15 years. And in fact, if it's a great time to invest, then invest in high quality companies and hold them for the long term and review them. You know, work with an advisor or an investment manager who can review them. And my analogy to that is that if you were walking down your local high street and you've got a big superstore there on the side, and you walk down, and you look, and they have some nice jackets and uh, whatever it might be there. And you're looking, and they think, that's a nice jacket. And you walk down the next day, and the jacket says, jacket's gone up 10% in price. Does that make you go and buy it? No, because, you know, why would you rush in to go and buy it now? It's 10% dearer, necessarily. However, if you walk down the high street, and it's 10% cheaper, and you quite like the jacket, maybe you might go in and buy it. So the key thing here is, is that when the market goes down, I say to clients, it's not because something's failing. It's because it's now at discount, because more people are selling than are buying. So actually, why didn't you become one of the buyers? Why didn't we, what we talked about, you know, why don't you be greedy when others are being fearful? Because that's when you get the chance to really actually invest and make money. The key fact here is that you don't make it on day one. So I've got clients where we've been investing over the last few weeks with both the companies and, you know, the money's kind of going in and the clients are going, well, we're not, the market's gone down a bit more, Stuart. You know, should we have invested? And I'm like, well, you know, it's not really a judgment I can make, but it's not about today or Next week, it's about 10 years' time. We've just bought that bit cheaper. You will benefit in the long term. And yeah, that, that yeah. actually, the key message for that, Maria, is if you are investing in stocks and shares, you're investing in companies, you know, be prepared to hold them from three to five years as a minimum period of time. Don't expect to make money in year one. If you do, it's a bonus. And then you can decide. Oh, it's, it's a long term thing. Otherwise, yeah. everyone will be doing it and expecting. Mm. Yeah. It, I think patience, patience is, is in everything, really. Mm. Uh, it's, it's not yeah. just in uh, it's, it's anything we do, because I remember uh, when I graduated and I thought, OK, I'm going to be a super designer after like, after like 
like three months, you know, and then you realize that it's a journey and then you start enjoying the process because mm. what you want changes as well over time. You grow, mm. you learn things, you know, you meet mm. people. And patience is a great virtue as well when it comes to investing. So, you know, I've had clients that have been with me maybe for 12, 15 years and they've invested in a fund that we recommended at some point in the early stages of their investment profile and you know 10 years later so we have a kind of a trick if you want to know what kind of return you could get on an investment we have something called the rule of 72 have you heard of this the rule of 72 so no. if you take the number 72 and divide it by the expected rate of return it will tell you how many years it takes to double your money so really simple if you put something in a cash product and it gives you one percent interest you divide 72 by one it equals 72 it means it will take 72 years to actually double your money, okay? If you have invested in a stocks and shares investment portfolio and you could do it and get an average, let's keep it simple, 7.2% per year, divide 72 by 7.2, you know that every 10 years you can double your money. And that's what we try and explain to clients on that basis. So patience comes around to saying that you're going to have ups, you're going to have downs, you can have good years and bad years. But to get this 7 or 8 or 9 or 10% per year on average, depending on your risk profile, to actually achieve that, some years are going to be a lot worse. And some years are going to be absolutely stellar. But the whole point is that the whole average of turnover that time comes. It comes to another point that is really important to touch on here. And I think it's often not expressed enough. And that's about the education piece. I think education is an absolute critical part of this. You cannot expect a client or somebody to invest with you unless you can offer them the chance to understand, learn more about what their money's doing and why it's doing it and what benefit it is to them. So education, and it doesn't just start, you know, with a kind of first meeting and hope they pick it up. It's an ongoing process. So I know now that you know, a client that invested with me six months ago would be on the phone to me panicking because the market's gone down. But that client who invested with me 10 years ago, who's seen several blips in the market with Brexit or whatever else it might be going on and pandemic, didn't even bother to ring me you know in fact they do it's because they've yeah. got some more money they want to invest it quickly because it's cheaper <laughs> that's the education piece again you know very so yeah cool. i'm wondering if, if you would get more phone calls than doctors in mm. that case because i mean what is it that you can do just leave it there i mean you know it's gonna go at, as you said upward upward down basically mm. so the other factors i mean you know when we talked about i don't know 20 30 minutes ago we were talking about different asset classes the other mm -hmm. fact is that, you know, those asset classes will be in different proportions depending on your level of risk you want to take. So if you're a very risky person, you want to have more shares and more growth type stocks. If you're more low risk, you might want more defensive like bonds or cash, et cetera. Means. And when you set up a portfolio, of course, it'll all grow at different rates. And one of the key factors here to recognize is that if you just let it grow, what happens is that in a good market, your stocks will grow quicker than the rest of your portfolio. Yeah. So your mm -hmm. shares, equities will grow much quicker than your bonds or maybe even commodities and gold. And then what happens is you, they go really high. And then when the market falls, they might go up and the equities might come down and you go, oh, it's doing its job. But actually what you should have done is taken some of that growth out and invested it into more defensive type assets or maybe commodities when they were cheaper. So when the market does fall, so what you're doing, you're kind of as, as it kind of goes up, you're just doing this all the way. So the equities going up, bring it back down. Mm -hmm. And you right. when the market goes down, you've actually got more defensive assets in and we smooth that return. Now, there's again a really bit of simple maths here, okay? If you invest £100 today and it goes down by 20%, okay? So I'm, I'm going to let you do some maths here, okay? So you have a £100 investment, Maria, okay? I don't like maths. It goes down by 20%. Let's see how I you get I was doing accounting all night long yesterday. <laughs> so it goes down 20%. 
how much is your how much is your portfolio worth if you've lost 20 percent if you invested 100 pounds uh, if i had invested 100 pounds 100 pounds and you've lost 20 yeah. percent it's going to be worth 80 yeah, yeah. 80 pounds because you've lost 20 yeah. percent now to get back up to 100 pounds you've got to have more than 20 percent growth you could have 25 percent growth because you need to, to get go above, you mean? i need yeah, to, to get, get back to where you started yeah you need to go back to where you started so if you imagine let's make it even simpler you've invested 100 pounds and you've lost 50 percent of your valuation the 100 pounds gone down to 50 to get back up to 100 you can't have 50 percent growth you've got to have 100 percent growth yeah so one of the factors here also is by managing your asset allocation, smoothing those returns out, if at that £100, you know, you only uh, only lose, you know, 10%, it goes down to 90. Actually, you only got to get back with it 12 and whatever it is percent to get back. Because actually, the lower you protect it on the downside, the more opportunity you've got to grow. I always say to clients that the real secret ingredient with a good investment manager or a good financial advisor is not making money when the market's going up because anybody can do that. You just invest and the market goes up. It's how you manage on the downside to stop you losing too much money, how you protect that and how you also remain invested because some of the best days in the market come straight after the biggest falls. You know, you yeah. see that, you know, you see, you often see in the news, you know, the FTSE or whatever falls five or six percent. Next day, it's back up three or four percent, you know, yeah, yeah. three or four percent rise in an a index is phenomenal. You know, and if you can invest more at that point, that's a big, big bonus to start at, definitely. I have a question because we can go on forever and that's uh, quite a bit long. We're doing, is it three hours today, you said? Is it three hours? <laughs> it three hours? I can't remember now. You know. So uh, last question, I just want to bring things back, you know, mm. just from where we started with you, with your interest in ethical investing mm. and so on. So how do you deal with this? So if you have clients who would come and tell you they want to invest in this particular company, they want to buy X amount of you know shares, whatever that is. And you don't have this person's belief and, and you don't want to work with this kind of company because it's against your ethos in, in mm. that way. How do you manage that? Because at the end of the day, you made a choice of, you know, doing what you do, but also in focusing on a certain area. So do you choose your clients or do you go for it? Because at the end of the day, you can't impose your choice on everyone. How, how do you do that? I'm going to be sensitive the way I answer this because, you know, when I invest a client's money, you know, if someone comes to me with a million pounds to invest, it's their money, not mine. And so therefore, I have to heed that the decisions or the recommendations I make need to be ultimately decisions they make. They have to ultimately, now they don't, they don't take responsibility for that advice. It's still my responsibility. We don't have something called buyer beware anymore. It's now seller beware. So I have to be very, very mindful that I'm giving them good advice and it's the right kind of advice. But if someone comes to me and says, look, you know, I, I, I don't want to invest. We, we ask questions, you know, what would you not want to invest in? What would you like to invest in? So we do have those conversations prior to investment, prior to making recommendations. And by the way, a lot of clients come to us and we work on a discretionary basis. So they say, here's the money, you get on with it. You know, and we still report back to them, we show them what we're investing in, but we still have to ask them, you know, what's that investment mandate? What's that mandate they're sitting with us? So, you know, what do they do and don't want to invest in? I had an example, a really good client who um, was very pro-Palestine, very anti-Israeli in some of the actions they were taking in Israel. Difficult situation again. Let's not steer into politics quickly. But he came back and said to me, I don't want to invest, you know, in a particular company because they provide a product that is used by the Israeli Defense Force. And mm -hmm. I feel just, I just don't want to invest in it. 
Uh, so that's fine. Now, we wouldn't have done a direct investment into that company. I'm not going to mention it because it would be unfair, but I think I wouldn't do a direct investment that. But what I did was I was able to look at all the funds he was investing in and drill down to those funds to see if that company existed. And if it existed in the actual, it was a US company, if it existed actually in the, that US fund, I could say, let's go and find one that hasn't got it. You know, so I could do, so you can actually help clients and, and go towards their kind of beliefs. I think I have no problem with that. Now, in, of course, in Sharia compliance investing, that's even more key because there are very key factors that are excluded and also positively included. So, you know, we have to be really, really clear about how we manage those perspectives. You know, so things like alcohol, things um, kind of armament and, and what, still quite ethically based and surrounded, but even pork related or things like that, you know, they can't be invested. So you have to be very, very clear. So there are the big pictures where we say everybody shouldn't be or everyone doesn't wish to be. And then there are what I call individuals where we try and meet the need. I think if we had someone who was incredibly particular and strong about their suggestions, um, we always say, well, it's better to go and invest in our own and one of the platforms where you can do it, what we call execution only. Because if I advise mm -hmm. you on this and you want to go and do something which is totally different and I say, oh, OK, we'll go and do that. And then it goes wrong. I, it's my fault still. So I have to stick to my policies, shall we say. I have to stick to my, my we have a, what we call it, you know, a core investment proposition. We have to stick within that framework. But within mm -hmm. that framework, we have allowances for individuals to be able to put forward what's important to them. And I think that's great. I actually like that. And I like clients to come and challenge me and come and talk to me about things and find out more about things. This, I talked about the education piece. That's important. Yeah. But it's more than that as well. It's about being comfortable with what you're investing in and feeling that profit you're making is justifiable in the world we live today, where we are seeing so many terrible things happen on a humanitarian and climate environmental basis. I think we need to, have, it's a wake up call at the moment, it really is. Cool. And, and that was a nice uh, siren at the end, just to <laughs> remind us, you know, to make things. Yeah, sorry about that. that. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. No, cool. Thank you so much for this. And, uh, you know, that was a tough one because when we talk about this landscape in general, it's very hard mm. not to get into politics. And I've always had interest in politics, but I'm not a political expert in that sense. But it's really mixed. And it's, it, it goes, you know, and, and it's based on specific tweets as well by um, intellectual people and, and so on. So it's really, that's why it's so volatile. So it's, uh, it's a nice space to be in because I think you're challenged every day. And mm. yes. uh, thank you so much for this uh, hour. Time flies you when you're much. enjoying yourself, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, absolutely. And people always talk about, um, I got a little quote from Albert Einstein. People talk about, you know, compound uh, interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And he, and there's a bit that people often don't talk about afterwards. He's, and he says that he who understands it earns it. He who doesn't pays it. And I always think that's, come back to the education piece, I think it's beautiful because people need to really, really take an interest in their money and what they're investing in. Don't rely upon the state or governments to support you going forward. You know, be, you know, you and your family and your friends, it's really important you have a genuine interest in that and, uh, and follow it. So, yeah, and take good advice. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure, Totten. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, where can we find you? LinkedIn, Twitter, you're super active. Link, so yeah, uh, LinkedIn, my profile's there. Stuart Hutton, look me up. Everything's there. I should be up to date. Well, it's not quite actually because there's a few things going on there. I'm going to add to it shortly. Um, I, I'm, I'm active on Twitter at Hutton IF. Um, so Hutton If is the way to put it. That's the best thing. If you're really interested in my garden, you can follow me on Instagram, at, which is also Hutton If. But that's just generally flowers and insects and anything I find in my garden. 
<laughs> but otherwise, but otherwise, yeah. Um, please, you know, LinkedIn and come and follow me. I'm always happy to kind of uh, connect with people and uh, have talks offline and things. No problem at all. So please, as you know, Marie, you've known me for long enough now to know that I'm a highly communicative guy and that I, I really yeah. enjoy meeting, talking to people. There's loads of events I talk at, as you know, like Horasis and things like that, which you know people want to come along to or, or other kind of areas, you know, around. It's great to meet people and talk to people and everything. So please, yeah, I'm I'm here if people need me. Very happy. That's true. So yeah, just connect with Stuart if you want to have a chat. Thank you. Have an off. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you've got to have fun. You've got to have fun. Life's so, so serious. So many awful things happening, but you've got to spread a smile. You've got to have a reason. Get up in the morning and smile. You know, definitely. There we go. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stuart. My pleasure. You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloop. To support the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with anyone who could benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.